and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 9, issue 411 on Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Joining me, James Carter, in this issue 411 are Jacob Geller. Damn, still alive. <laughs> Hello. Uh, John Salmon as well. Hi. And last but by no means least, Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Welcome all. Uh, it's the J Crew. Uh, that's not no. We need to workshop that name. Um, <laughs> uh, and we're talking uh, Sekiro. So let's dive into a little bit about this game. Uh, to kind of sum up what the game is, I kind of came up with three statements that I think cover it. Uh, first off, third-person action game set in the fictional land of Ashina during the real Sengoku period of the 16th century Japan. Um, secondly, it's the first direct collaboration between developer From Software and publisher Activision since 2003's Lost Kingdoms 2. Um, as mentioned, From Software involved, they are the developer of this game. Publishing, uh, From Software handled Japanese publishing and Activision most of the rest of the world. Uh, although I did find that Cube Game were publisher in Asia Pacific re- region, so. Uh, obviously, publishing deals vary, but Activision, the on-the-box publisher for all of us playing it who are on this uh, this recording today. Um, directors from software are fearful to put out a game without this man's name as a director. Uh, Hidetaka Miyazaki, there as co-director this time with Kazuhiro Hamatani. Apologies on pronunciation of any of these. Um, I think what's notable here is that the two directors kind of come from different sides of where a lot of the uh, credited leads leads on this game kind of take their inspiration, which is um, Hidetaka Miyazaki, obviously known for Demon Souls, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, the recent From Software output. Um, but Kazuhiro Hamatani um, has, uh, has credits in Otogi and Ninja Blade, and you will see some of that throughout. Notably for the composer, I suppose it's worth mentioning, um, Yuka Kitamura, um, was composer on Dark Souls 2 and 3, but obviously as a kind of Souls-born overall genre thing-ish that's ever-changing, uh, the composers in the FromSoft games kind of do matter in that respect. Before we get into details around the release and reception, I thought it would be good just to hear from someone from the forum, in this case Third Drawing, who says, I have tried all the Soulsborne games and this is the first one that has clicked with me. Maybe it's because this game was originally going to be a Tenchu game, but I really enjoy being able to flick around from spot to spot, and there's a flexibility I've felt in this game that I haven't felt in others. And yes, while I've died, I haven't felt as frustrated, except that damn ogre at the beginning, in this game as others. I'm not finished it yet, but I'm going to persevere and finish it, and it will be the first one I do. That's what's made the difference between this game and the others. I have actually enjoyed it enough to try and finish. So the game was released 22nd of March 2019, as of recording exactly one year ago. Uh, That was released on PC, PS4, and Xbox One. In terms of reception for the game, I have OpenCritic listed as a 90, and the only user review score I could find that had a sizable number of um, people contributing to it was on IMDb, an 8.6. So pretty highly rated, all things considered. And that's reflected in the sales as well. Um, This was a UK number one in physical sales. Uh, Ours happens to be one of the few countries that still lists a physical sales chart um, every every week, I think. Um, And in this case, it equaled roughly Dark Souls physical sales for the opening week. 
uh, was uh, about, about a third worse than thirty uh, percent worse than Bloodborne in UK week one physical sales. Obviously, doesn't account for digital. Uh, that kind of needs to be stated here. Um, uh, otherwise, we know that the game sold two million copies in its first ten days, with a hundred thousand of those in the first twenty-four hours. So, our histories, where did we come to for, for this game in terms of our FromSoft histories and genre histories? Uh, and how we played the game. We should probably mention that, whether it was at launch or more recently. Uh, Josh, would you kick us off, please? So, I said uh, at the end of the Dark Souls 3 podcast that... Um, basically, basically, context for anyone who hasn't listened to that that issue. Um, I, I was disappointed by Dark Souls 3. I think there are things that are am- a- admirable about it, um, but ultimately it left, it left me cold. Um, and I said, like... From for me is um at their best when they're doing something new. Like all my favorite From games are the start of something different. So Demon Souls, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, uh, and potentially at that point in time, Sekiro. <laughs> um and so when uh, you know the the announcement of this game, I was really excited because it was from trying some fresh ideas, trying a fresh setting. Um, and I was hoping that the fire I felt when playing Bloodborne would be reignited um, with this release. Um, I was day one on this, um, and uh, yeah, there's not not much more to say. I, I played through it very quickly, mm-hmm. and um, I've gotten about two thirds of the way through on New Game Plus. Excellent. Uh, John, next. How about yourself? Um, I was interested in Sekiro I was already from the get-go kind of skeptical about whether or not I'd enjoy it um there was certainly a thing of you know I want another from software game but I also want another Dark Souls like game um I think if it hadn't have been for the fact that this was being developed by from I probably would have had very little interest in it at all probably wouldn't have paid it that much attention um I didn't pick it up on launch I can't remember exactly why whether it was just I was waiting to see and hear a little bit more about it or, you know, it was cheap at the time. Um, I know that I got it about a month afterwards when I first noticed it on sale. Um, I played it for about a month pretty solidly. I think I put 50 or 60 hours into it. Um, Kind of got to a bit of a bashing my head up against the wall point, maybe two thirds of the way through the game and put it down at that point in frustration, and I hadn't returned to it until, I guess, maybe three weeks ago, possibly four weeks at the most, and uh, actually I'm not going to say whether or not I completed it, because we were talking earlier about the fact that I was still trying to beat the final boss about four or five hours ago, Mm -hmm. and yeah, stay tuned and you'll find out whether I did or not. (laughs) Excellent, a teaser for the end. Um, so for myself, um, you can go back to Kane and Rin's history of these FromSoft games, as as Josh mentioned, from Demon Souls onwards. Um, I have played them all since Dark Souls, all at release. Um, I wasn't on the Bloodborne recording, but like Josh, I tend to, and John actually, I tend to feel from or at their strongest with these games when they're starting something new. Uh, that's not to say Dark Souls 2 and 3, I didn't find things to enjoy in and admire a lot of the uh, changes they made with, with some of the aspects of the game. But 
I was very much looking forward to uh, Sekiro. I can't say that my uh, Japanese history is particularly strong, uh, but it looked interesting. Uh, I was watching trailers and picking out bits that kind of trying to work out what the mechanics were, what was going on uh, from the very first teaser trailer, um, which turned out to be of the prosthetic uh, arm. But at the time, it was a very much almost a rehash of the Project Beast situation where it was kind of trying to work out what was going on there. Um, I played the game at launch and probably over the course of about three weeks to my first completion uh, from memory. I mentioned that because Jacob's about to, <laughs> to make that look very silly. Um, I played a ra- something that's fairly normal for a FromSoft first playthrough for me, so about 70 hours it took for my first playthrough, uh, and then very quickly went through New Game Plus, Plus Plus, uh, basically whatever. I, I think I had to play through three full times to get the, um, not Platinum Trophy on Xbox, the 1000 uh, gamer score. Um, so I, I, as always with uh, everything but Demon Souls. I go through and get the whole lot just because I can't help myself. And actually didn't get back to it since then. I spent a lot of my time reading in the preparation for this podcast. Um, so I actually haven't touched the game in uh, 11 months now or so, give or take. Uh, so that, that's been interesting, kind of uh, theoretically reliving my memories rather than practically. Um, and that leads us on to lastly, Jacob, your history with the game. Yes, so I, like everyone else, big, big from fan, big Souls fan, uh, I was particularly excited about this because I do not like the RPG elements of the Souls games. Mm-hmm. I don't like statistics or weapon damage values or poise. I like how the game feels. Um, and so hearing that they were doing a game that was going to do away with all that made me very excited. Um, and I, I picked it up on day one. I actually took the day off work, which is rare in the US where we get virtually no sick leave (laughs) and so it was it was a big deal um and yeah then over the course of i think i think i i started playing it on a friday which was when i took it off and i um completed the game by that tuesday and the the like the next tuesday and fully the monday and tuesday were both just the final boss so more or less i had had beat it in a weekend um and then went on to complete it many many more times i think about as many times as all of you combined um and and got the platinum trophy and have just recently and then kind of put it down and haven't really touched it uh until a couple days ago when i've started going through it again in preparation and kind of reminding myself for this one weekend that's outrageous (laughs) it was i think i think the final time was about uh, 20 28 29 hours on the save file it's Absolutely pertinent for me to put in a spoiler alert. I think we've done pretty well through through our discussion so far to avoid any spoilers. We will not be doing that from now on. So if you haven't played the game or don't want to know, then what are you doing here? Come back when you've we've done it. I promise we'll make it worthwhile. We've already mentioned that this is set in the Sengoku period of Japan, which is around the um, 1600s, so 16th into 17th century. Um, but it's in a reimagined version of that, so a fictional land called Ashina, um, and it's centred around the fall of the Ashina clan. After a period of prosperity, their um, warlord leader, Ishin Ashina, is now in ill health, and his grandson, Genichiro, is fighting desperately to try and keep the forces that seek to unify Japan under one ruler at bay. 
that's the overall setting. But I went through, and um, obviously, as with all of these games, there are YouTubers doing excellent work to package um, lore videos together, that kind of thing. Um, it seems pointless almost to mention the name Vatiavidia because everyone listening probably knows that name. Um, I went through a couple of videos of his. I can't take credit for that at all. Um, feel free to go and find there the amount of Japanese folklore that exactly the same as in, in the way that a lot of different folklore makes its way into the Dark Souls games um, and it affects the aesthetic, it affects different areas and the, the history of the world. It, there is an incredible amount, too much to get into here uh, at all. There's some that's obvious, like the um, the Three Wise Monkeys. Uh, most people will think of them as uh, the monkeys that represent see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil. There is sometimes, and in this game, a fourth monkey uh, who symbolizes the principle of do no evil. Um, that's one boss is entirely built around that um, myth or, or um, folk story, I guess. Um, there's all sorts on um, not just Japanese history, but also into some Korean um, history and folklore. It, it is really um, impressive, I think, just how many aspects of this game that you could just imagine were dreamt up out of the brain of the writer, where actually they are pulling from, and not just all of the time, some of it from as far back as 12th century, um, sort of uh, mythological figures in Japanese history. Uh, there's a lot, an awful lot. And what I do, what I really like about this story in kind of in contrast to to some of their previous efforts is that there is so much, you know, backstory, but all of that is kind of, um, you know, where things are being pulled from and kind of like traditions and stuff. But mm -hmm. the story itself is very easy to understand and very is, straightforward. Yeah. And so, you know, the kind of like the videos made on this game are not let me explain what happened in the story, which is kind of the form of Dark Souls videos and more mm -hmm. like, you know what happened in the story. Let me tell you why this is like culturally relevant, which I think is a, a much more interesting conversation and is totally taste, you know, and, and I know that people like doing their kind of like lore archaeology on the Dark Souls games. But for yeah. me, I liked that. I got what was happening the first time through and mm -hmm. then could kind of learn history instead of the literal events of the game. Mm, this, there's a lot of stuff that's not it very explicitly mm. spelled out, although it, it differs from Dark Souls in that you do have quite a lot of story told to you in conversations directly with characters, um, but it has the same storytelling mechanics for, you know, some of the background lore that you get in the Dark Souls games, as in, you know, you pick up items and uh, memories of, of some of the fights that you have that give a little bit more details. Um, quite a lot of the the kind of the deeper storyline is hidden behind these uh, collectible, not really collectible, but these items that are um, different, uh, different alcoholic drinks that you can find mm. and then give to one of three different um, NPCs, who I suppose are three of the most main characters in the whole game, yeah. and each one gives you a bit more of their backstory, which then if you haven't seen all of that or heard a lot of that, you legitimately don't understand some of the later game bosses and things that are going on. It wouldn't have made any sense to you. Well, one of my favourite, and From's always done this, um, 
But one of my favorite aspects of Sekiro is not just the way it draws from folklore, but real history, real history. Yeah. Um, in the notes, you, you mentioned how Tomoe is actually inspired by a real life figure. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. That's yeah. really like just this, this character that, um, is so important for the, uh, especially the backstory of, um, Genshiro, like, just to have her be inspired by someone real is really just fascinating in of itself. But then you get the, like the stuff with like the, the rifles and um, you know, the Portuguese traders at the time. Yeah. Like I love that um, it's not just that there are guns about, but it's very specific who has the guns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you go back in time um, to the um, sacking of the Ashina estate, um, the bandits all have bows and arrows yep. because they're poor, yep. because they wouldn't be able to afford yep. to trade with Portuguese traders. The people who have rifles are either mercenaries, like spe like specific like groups of militia, or um, the, the Ashina clan themselves, or the ministry, like people who would have the resource to trade with the Portuguese traders, not just a band of uh, peasants who are rebelling against their lords, right? They don't have access to that kind of resource. And I love that attention to detail um, and, and, and just an awareness of how real history can help inform fantastical settings. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And in many ways, the, the baffling thing about that is, as far as I'm aware, the only direct nod to... Portuguese traders arriving and then Portuguese warriors ending up in warfare with uh, Japanese warriors is that one boss wears Portuguese or traditionally Portuguese armor. Is that the uh, the heavily armored the armored knight, warrior, the one yeah, whose, um, who whose son has the Roberto, <laughs> mm. <laughs> who who yeah, who absolutely wears Portuguese armor. That's a big part of who that boss is because his armor is impenetrable. Um, and ha has made a pilgrimage as a as someone who arrived with Portuguese traders to try and save his son's life, um, and in exchange for the monks ostensibly doing that, defends them over a bridge that is the only way. And and th that you could pass pass by that and think, wow, that's a, an interesting boss design and nothing more. But actually, no, it's a very specific armor set that leads you to understand something very specifically about real-life Japanese history in this sort of period, in the kind of the uh, last half of the 1600s, just into the early 1700s. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's honestly quite wild. So I'd recommend, if you're interested in finding out some of that stuff, definitely go and have a look for uh, lore videos on this. Uh, specifically, Vati Video was my go-to, just because that's been the case since uh, way back when with um, the, the FromSoft Souls and Bloodborne games. So we talked about having the the um, game having a more defined, more obvious story, but that's not the only thing that was different. Not only was it not an RPG in the gameplay, but it wasn't an RPG in terms of having a character creator. Um, even Bloodborne, which shied away from some of the elements of uh, Dark Souls' nature as an RPG, um, still had a character creator. You were still a generic uh, or self-created individual coming on 
the same quest no matter what character you created. This time around, you are a named protagonist, although it's a name you're well, every name's a name you're given. What am I talking about? <laughs> it's, he's called Wolf, and then eventually Sekiro, which is a one-armed wolf, um, roughly. Um, but he has a defined history. We see him in the opening cutscene as a child being found on a battlefield um, and uh, and has a defined story being told, a defined relationships to people there. You're not seeing this character newly arrive into a situation. This is a character that people know of and know, know he exists. I wondered if the fact that, mainly because I didn't realise there was so much lore and backstory and, and side information contained in this game, uh, as much as as I do now, uh, having done the research, um, I wondered if the fact that the, the central story is more obvious kind of means we don't have to look at the deeper lore. I think, as you kind of hinted at, Jacob, you can just take the story away on face value. Does, is that any kind of detriment to the kind of lore dive that can be done on these games, do we think? Is that me reaching there? I mean, no, because, I, again, this is, all, this is all taste, but I don't think so, because mm-hmm. just the fact that this story is easy to parse what happens doesn't mean that it's any less rich in terms of kind of mm-hmm. like theming big questions stuff like that you know the fact that i could tell you this story is about loyalty is is in contrast to a lot of you know it's like if you really want again i guess like dark souls 2 was about lineage or or whatever but But, like it's a reach yeah yeah yes but this has this has a a clearly defined theme and then can like play many variations and kind of like you know operating on the fact that you know that's the theme then it can pose really interesting questions to you and so i feel like it's the it makes itself base level accessible and so then it can you know actually kind of like get more philosophical with some of the other stuff that it's asking rather than the the hard part being just trying to figure out just what happens. You know, I think that it actually gives them more liberty to do stuff w- when they've decided that, like, you know, you are going to have at least some understanding Everyone's of the events up to here. Everyone's getting level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's almost yeah. like this is a cipher for the difficulty of the game, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone should be able to enjoy to this level, and if you want more, here it is. Yeah. Uh, I think ultimately, and um, from software uh, tried very mm. hard. It, it it didn't stop anyone from doing it anyway, <laughs> but tried very hard to uh, separate Sekiro from the Souls yes. uh, lineage yeah, no, in people's minds. They kept emphasizing mm. that this this isn't a this isn't a Souls game. This is its own thing. It's a di- and like there are definitely like mechanical similarities, mm. but. Everything from the story to what the game actually chooses to focus on is very different from, you know, even the, you know, Bloodborne, which is the most different of the traditional Souls game. This is way more like this is radically different. And I think the change of storytelling, um, it's leaner. It's more tightly focused. But I don't think as, you know, to Jacob's point, I don't think that's. Let that leaner doesn't mean lesser. Mm. Like it's, it's going for a different style of storytelling. It's going for a different thing. It's funny that um, 
Like, for, and there's still opportunity to interpret this in different ways. So I, I find it funny that, you know, Jacob said this is a story about loyalty because to me, it's, uh, it's a story about privilege and power and how unconsciously power can ruin people's lives mm. without the powerful even knowing it's happening and how immortality is a great uh, metaphor for privilege and power. And how when um, Sekiro is bestowed with immortality, his his taking advantage of that power is destroying people's lives yeah. through the, the dragon mm-hmm. rot. Um, and I thought that was like a beautiful metaphor. So the fact that the story is, um, you know, in inverted commas, simpler than a Dark Souls and a Bloodborne doesn't take away from its ability to evoke... Um, many different themes and have a lot of symbols for many different things um, in there. Um, I think it's a different approach Mm -hmm. than they've taken before, but I don't think it's any less rich. John, how about yourself? How did you find the uh, story in terms of its legibility to you as you were playing through the game? It's a it's a bit of a tricky one because I think that if this wasn't wasn't a FromSoft game and didn't have quite a lot of other mechanical similarities and some storyline you know st- storytelling similarities to their previous games i don't think we we'd be having this conversation at all you'd just be saying oh it had a story the story was either good or bad depending like the the only um the point of comparison here is only due to the developer's previous work um i think that uh, as josh said it's uh, it's a leaner more maybe simpler story but it doesn't make it um it doesn't make it any shallower for that reason it just it means i suppose in some ways it means that some of the deep diving law people might have struggled a little bit more with it and i imagine that some people like varty are probably desperately waiting for elden ring to come along so that they can you know get back into something a little bit more meaty um but yeah, obviously the the focus here has been shifted more from the story into the into the gameplay, and you know even more so into the kind of the boss battles. And I don't necessarily think it's either a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a it's different, different thing, and yeah, I just enjoy it for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've kind of talked about the uh, setup. The story in and of itself is. Um, I mean, I've made more of it in these notes than really needs to be made necessarily, but um, you play a shinobi who is pulled between your master, a young child who is immortal, called Kuro, um, and wants to end that immortality because he sees what others haven't yet necessarily, that the, the damage that as you say, Josh, the privilege of immortality and the lure of immortality is doing to the whole land and uh, fears that it will go beyond that. Um, and so it's uh, it's a story about Sekiro choosing to help in that respect, choosing to help find a way to end this curse of immortality, um, which in that respect starts to sound a lot like a Souls game, but it's the individual character dynamics that really interested me in that respect, I have to say. You meet people like Emma and Ishinashina, the fact you've got a, a grandfather and grandson who have such different attitudes towards their land and towards the um, places they want their land to go, the, the, the land they want to create, um, and their attitudes towards battle and how they want to uh, create change are just vastly different. 
um, which I think is really interesting. You're seeing these, you're still seeing them in an asynchronous way. You find out after the fact what's been going on in some cases, but you're still, you're seeing throughout the course of the game relationships unfold um, in a way that hasn't been the case in previous games, which is uh, really quite cool, I think. In terms of cast, I think it's also worth talking about the fact that for all of our cast here, we've got two credited actors predominantly, one for the English um, voice cast and one for the Japanese voice cast. Um, how did we interface with this game in terms of that? Did we play uh, Japanese with, I'm presuming we all need subtitles for that, or did we go with the English voices? Um, I I think it, when it starts off, if you're playing you know, the uh, PAL region or NTSC um, American yeah. region game, I'm pretty sure mine started defaulting to English with the the opening cutscene, and um, I immediately wanted to shoot that down. I mean, this is a this is a game made by a Japanese team set in Japan with almost entirely Japanese characters. I I don't see any reason to not listen to the Japanese voices, so that was fine. And I played through the entire game with the Japanese voice acting. It's hard for me to tell because. You know, I'm not a native Japanese speaker or anything, so I don't understand some of the maybe the inflections or the uh, the different accents and stuff. Um, so I was I was completely happy with what I heard. But what did I did find very disturbing was some of the videos and things that I've watched people using the English voice acting. I really didn't like a lot of the the dialogue and the some of the voice acting choices seemed very strange coming out of. Um, clearly Japanese characters' mouths. I think the one that really stuck out to me was is it Black Hat Badger, who's the um, the little uh, abduction guy who was working for the monks, and you have sort of a smallish storyline yep. with him. Yep. He sounded like, you know, sort of like a Brooklyn street trader or something. It just, the way that he <laughs> yeah. talked about things, it sounded so, so strange. And, and you know, maybe the Japanese dialogue is of the same thing where someone who knew more about it would say, well, that's from, you know, that's from somewhere up North. You wouldn't have somebody who sounded like that, but you know, I found the English, uh, some of the English ones very off putting. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I went Japanese as subtitles. Um, part, part of that. And, uh, I, I'm worried I may be wrong here, but, um, if that's the case, please, uh, send me loads of ads on Twitter. Um, but, um, I, my, me- if memory serves, Bloodborne, um, the English voice acting is actually the first recording. Like that is the, the intended voice cast. Um, and then everything else is, uh, the alternative. Um, so even in Japan, like it, it, the English voice cast is the default, um, a default option. Whereas with this, it felt like, no, this, it, like this has to be Japanese. Mm. It's a Japanese setting. Um, all the English voice actors don't feel like of the place and of the region, like the you know going back to Bloodborne, like um, Eileen the Crow, um, Father Gascoigne, those are some really interesting accent choices that are inspired by the setting. Like it was so great to hear like a Northern English accent uh, coming from a character in a video game. Because so often when you hear British accents, it's either Cockney or 
um, uh, Oxbridge, and that's it. So um, the, the the accent choices in Bloodborne were very specific and 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 well observed. I feel, mm. whereas um, a lot of the accents in um, in the English voice act. Uh, uh, voice cast for Sekiro just feel like the accents of whoever happened to be playing those characters. Um, so yeah, I I went Japanese uh, and English subtitles. Anecdotally, again, this is me um, uh, hearing things secondhand. Um, the localization for this game is not meant to be as strong as Bloodborne and the Dark Souls series. Um, apparently, there are a lot of little mistranslations that have led to confusion with some of the mechanics and systems in the game um, and um, and some of the story as well. So I, I think possibly this game suffers a little bit from um, not quite as strong a localization effort as uh, From's previous F, uh, previous work. Mm. Um, but for what it's worth, I think the ja- the Japanese voice cast is uh, uniformly excellent. I especially love Gyobo and his uh, his <laughs> entrance, entrance yeah. is uh, well. I mean, but I fantastic. do I do want to go to bat for the the Gyobu uh, entrance in English is also fantastic. I mean, if you if you yeah. haven't heard the way the English actor delivers those lines, I mean, it is it is over the top, but it is yeah. very very fun. So I think I mean I also I also went Japanese. I do think that's the you know better, but I think that think that the english voice actors were probably in a pretty impossible position here i mean like should they have done accents yeah like i don't think that would have been better so it's i think they just had a very challenging go of it and from what i've heard of the english one i think it's fine um uh but it is japanese just seems like the obvious choice here yeah so in in my case i went japanese as well and part of that was my old kind of assassin's creed adage which is i would prefer if possible and to to hear the the local uh, language being spoken local to the setting of the game um i'm perfectly happy with subtitles um uh, but I, and I don't know whether I prefer the Japanese now, having heard the English afterwards, simply because I prefer what I heard first. But some of the lines are verbatim what I read from the subtitles, and they did not sound right to me. I started to notice that the dialogue, when read out loud, didn't really work to me after having accepted it perfectly well, reading it as subtitles while someone spoke the Japanese line. Um, something about hearing it out loud just made it sound a little strange. I'm not sure if that was the acting or that was the dialogue itself just never could have sounded good read out loud. Um, but yeah, I, I went with uh, Japanese and I was uh, happy with that, I have to say. Um, and the reason I wanted to, to ask that is because that's how the story is told to us, especially in this game where there are more cutscenes um, and more conversations than we might be used to from from previous games. There's a lot of dialogue to kind of digest there and help form the story. Um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed this in the Japanese, I have to say. And yeah, the English sounds odd to my ears, whether that's just what I've been indoctrinated to, I don't know. Of the, the cast members, um, there are so many. And uh, as you mentioned, John, Black Cat Badger... That's a, a wonderful side story, I think. Tragic and um, wretched side story, but wonderfully told, I should say, um, about uh, a 
group of warriors who are basically uh, mercenaries sent in as spies and assassins to destabilize different places whose uh, allegiance seems to be up for uh, purchase. Um, and Black Cat Badger uh, has his family uh, taken away from him on behalf of this and decides to turn against his former employers. Uh, and you see him at several points. He's a vendor, but has a rich history that you get to see a story unfold throughout the game, just in snippets, but it's, um, I think, really well done and touching, even down to uh, when that character dies, the Mibu balloon, which is a balloon of rejuvenating water that is uh, contains a blessing, and the blessing for him was for his son, Tenkichi. Uh, he left that, uh, or created that blessing for his son, to, to give him a prosperous life and ended up outliving his son and still keeps that balloon on him. Uh, little things like that, I think, are really touching about this. I wondered if any of you had particular characters, either in the main cast or in some of the side characters, that you wanted to um, draw particular attention to, either for their actors or for the character in the story themselves. I don't have a character as much as a mechanic, which is that the the sake, I think, was just like the most genius thing. I, I just mm. loved that you could kind of like see how different characters would react to being given a drink and then they would like tell you stuff about the drink and, and in telling you that would kind of fill in some of the backstory. But it's just I mean, like I... I think this game has a real sense of humor in a way that that separates it from from a lot of their previous titles and just the kind of like, you know, how characters would be like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> this is just kind of like a very fun way of gaining information. Um, and it was it was just kind of playful. Like, hey, have a drink with the cast. See what they think about it. Yeah. Am I right in thinking you can't necessarily find three characters you can give Saki to? I think it's only three. You can't necessarily find three of every type of sake, so there is some choice having to be made there as to who you give the sake to. I think so, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely uh, a couple of the sakes that are more common and you might get three of. I seem to remember going to all of them at some point, but yeah. And some of them are, are hidden away behind things like uh, expensive purchases from um, yeah. from uh, merchants or, you know, like extreme end game areas and things like that. And you know, there's there's also possibilities with the storyline where you get to a certain point and all three of those characters who you are have been giving the um the sake to have suddenly all become uh unable to take the sake anymore and one of them who who is still around actually makes some uh quite amusing line when you when you offer them a drink about to, oh this is not, not the, the time for, for libations yeah. anymore <laughs> yeah and uh, <laughs> i quite enjoyed some of that but uh, on the other hand you know that that area that you come back from if you haven't been back and forwards during it, you might come back from that area with some of these drinks, only to find that uh, yeah, nobody's still available far, yeah. to, to have them yeah. with you. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned this sake as well, um, Jacob, because uh, Emma's story and the sculptor's story and in some ways Ishinashina's stories, you don't get a full picture without talking to them over uh, uh, a drink of sake. Um, in terms of Emma's history... Um, her history interweaves with both of those other two characters. In fact, all of their histories interweave with one another. Um, you find out that Ishin is the one who cut the arm from um, the sculptor in order to uh, stop him becoming Ashura previously in, in his life. Um, you find out that the sculptor is the one who rescued Emma from the battlefield, much as Owl rescued Sekiro. 
Um, there's so much in terms of parallel backstories and also just, uh, as, I may, as I said, the, the ongoing relationships developing between these players as you're uncovering their history and finding out where that's going to lead them in the story. We mentioned that um, there are historical figures, Lady Tomoe and um, Lord Takaru the Divine, the Divine Heir. Those aren't, Lord Takaru in particular isn't a historical figure from real life, but is historical in the game. We've talked about uncovering the past. Um, there are boss characters where you could be forgiven for thinking they are just spirits, but they're actually legendary war warriors from the history of Ashina, and they are cautionary tales about what could become of Sekiro. A large part of the story is Sekiro coming into contact with people who have been in his situation previously, or situations similar, and the cautionary tale that they represent for him. That said, we also have many of those are, are the bosses. Uh, many of those we've mentioned previously are, are not only characters who um, push the story forward, but they are boss characters that you can encounter. And so on the bosses, before we tuck into our opinions on them, we have once again Gingertastic01 from the forum who says, An aspect which I thought was a little disappointing was the bosses. The bosses themselves were fantastic and are up there with some of my favourites from the developer. However, it seemed to be reusing a fair few bosses throughout the game. Perhaps it was how they were placed next to one another. It sometimes felt like I was just going from boss to boss with little exploration in between. The ape boss was so incredible and so unique. Then, a couple of hours later, it's like, here's two more, deal with it. Also from Pixel Hunted on the forum, Sekiro has at least two of the most satisfying boss fights I've ever had in my gaming life. Genichiro kicked my ass for about a week, then one night after a very late play session in which I made no progress, I went to bed mad at the game. While I was trying to get to sleep, repeat I repeatedly rehearsed the fight in my head and picturing every one of his moves, his rhythms, and what I would do to counter it. I woke up the next day, poured a coffee, and beat him first time. It clicked. Suddenly he was moving in slow motion, and I could predict his every move. It was a similar story for the final boss, the Sword Saint. That was a little less stressful, because I knew there was no way I'd give up at the final hurdle. Still, it took a brutal week of being perforated by him before I got his patterns down and learned how best to counter him. As I finally plunged my sword through him one last time, I felt an extreme serenity, happiness, and sense of accomplishment that you just don't normally find in video games. When I'm not gaming, I do ultra-distance running, as in running 100 miles in a single go. I don't know if I'd have had the patience and persistence to finish Sekiro without those running experiences and knowing how to push on while in the depths of misery, defeat and hopelessness. But I'm glad I did. The satisfaction of seeing those bosses fall was like nothing else I've experienced in a game to date. So, that uh, from Pixel Hunted probably sounds quite familiar to anyone who has played Sekiro. How did we feel overall about the bosses? Not that many in total. I counted 15. Uh, a couple of them um, kind of duplicates of what had been before. Uh, Genichiro we fight at the end of the game and have fought at the midpoint and technically right at the beginning as well. Um, and the uh, corrupted monk has both a false and true form, uh, for example. So there's definite repeats in there, um, which Gingertastic01 mentioned above. Um, how did we all feel about the bosses being, as they are, such a big part of the playing and story experience? Uh, I have been really completely all over the place, like up and down um, throughout the course of the game uh, on probably most of the bosses. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe mm -hmm. not quite all of them, but um, it's it feels like it's not... 
not too dissimilar from the previous Souls games in that you have an area that culminates in a couple of boss fights and has, you know, little hidden paths and things. So generally you don't do very much before coming up against either a, a mini boss or a boss. And it's one of those things where sort of early on, almost everything is is giving you quite a lot of problems. Um, you know, there's basically every boss in the beginning of the game for me, I think up until probably up until the castle at least like every boss was a stopping point where I had to just sort of hang out and figure them out and a lot of them took at least a couple of hours to get past um but it's it kind of treaded a real fine line for me where a lot of them were okay especially the mini bosses lots of them were okay lots of them have got uh, interesting strategies and things that you can you can use against them if you know if you're struggling a little bit too much, um, a couple of the mini bosses in particular um, didn't so much feel like puzzles, but felt like a huge sort of block in the road, except actually there's something that you can do that kind of mitigates it quite yeah. a lot. And I think one of the, uh, one of the ones that I found most um, enjoyable in that respect was the very last mini boss that I came up against, which is the, um, it's the repeat fight of the, is it the seven spears? Yep. Something about mm -hmm. seven spears. You find him in the reservoir at the end and you sort of come down these steps and you think, oh, oh no, it's this guy again. And he was a major block. Yeah. Probably about the point I was maybe a quarter of the way through yeah. the game. I think um, he is the block to be yeah. like, you know, everyone has different <laughs> challenges with this game, but no one breezes past seven spears. Like he is just a monster. Yeah. 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 Um, especially because I will stand by um, my opinion that I think I never quite learned properly how to fight against spear type enemies in this game. Um, I never managed to nail the Makiri counter down that well, especially because you seem to get slightly different timing on it for different enemies, depending on whether they're, you know, they're thrusting at you with a sword or a spear or whatnot. But I always found the um, the spears horrendous. I mean, I think probably my first really big point that if, if it had been anything else, I might have quit is um, the mini boss. He's a shinobi hunter in the, um, in the memory. He's really ridiculously early on. And I can't believe that I had as much trouble with with that guy as I did. But the um, going back to the point I was making, the repeat seven spears fight, you come down this flight of stairs in front of him and he's there hanging out with another one of what probably the most difficult regular enemies in the game. And they both just bum rush you and you get destroyed immediately. And it took me quite a long time to figure out that although they they both aggro you very, very quickly and easily, it is possible to use um, some stealthy items and sneak round behind the yeah. other guy and use the, is it Divine Abduction? Um, no, no, the not Divine Abduction. The, um, the back, yeah, that's it. Puppeteer Backstab Ninjutsu. And you can get him to fight yep. for you and it makes it really exciting yeah. and really interesting as opposed to just this coming up against a gank squad. And I had a couple of other fights that kind of played out in the same way. There's one in the castle at the very end I think it's a repeat of uh, he's a Ashina elite or a something elite who you find before you get to Genichiro the first time. He's hanging out near where um, Ishin Ashina used to be. I think he's in the little room underneath him. And I came came through to find him 
and just got destroyed about four times. So I was running back to him and realized one of the times that I came through, I, the, um, they're the ministry interior, uh, I don't know what the name of them is, the guys um, who do like the praying strike attacks on you, uh, or the, I don't know what they're called, but the guys with the, the purple and black striped um, like tunics yeah, that yeah. they wear. Two of them chased me from near the, um, why am I blanking on what the damn bonfire things are called? Oh, um, the um, idols. Yeah. The idols, yeah. Uh, two of them chased me basically all the way from the idol into this room where um, where the miniboss was, and they they um, started aggroing on the miniboss yeah. instead of on me. So I had another kind of possibly intentional that you might think to do that and do it on purpose, but I had these guys that accidentally chased me through into the boss <laughs> arena and join in the fight, which was immensely fun to sort of sit back and watch and, and take uh, take cheap shots in. So on you know, to draw out an incredibly long point, um, yeah, there are however many 50 bosses and mini-bosses combined. Some of them are the absolute height of kind of ingenuity and fun and, you know, even just fighting, fighting lots of them regularly, learning patterns, learning the fact that, oh, this is roughly the same guy as this previous one, but now he's, you know, he'll like whistle and dogs will come in, but there might be, you know, a, a thing that you can use to stop that, you know, blow the abduction whistle or whatever it is and and that will happen um but it it really tread a a huge swath from being just a lot of fun to some of the the ones at the top end that had less interesting ways of dealing with it rather than just you must sit here and learn every single one of this guy's like 11 different moves that he does and make sure you know exactly how to counter each one and and get back on it and at the worst point some of those fights took me hours and went way beyond the line of what was fun and satisfying to yeah. do it, well into the territory of being, I'm just bashing my head against this now. And some of the, there's three at the very end of the game, each of the three of them. I mean, let's say, for example, Demon of Hatred, I might have fought against him 50 or 60 times. And I, you know, I just sat down and I probably spent five or six hours doing it, um, over the course of a couple of different attempts and finally managed to nail it down. And it's great when it happens. It feels really satisfying and really good. But would it have been any, you know, would I have felt any less satisfied if that had have happened on the 20th time rather than the 50th time? I I don't think so. Like it's just a one step too far for me on quite a lot of them. And especially the final three, um, sort of big two optional bosses and then the final boss I think are all probably like 25-30% more difficult than they need to be oh that's a so so now I come in um <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> yeah hi I'm Jacob I did this in 15 you minutes know, and 25 to 30 percent is you know it's it's a hard thing to say because everyone has has different it, it experiences what what I loved about some of these bosses and also what I I don't I don't want to backseat game for you John but kind of what what sounds like it would have been some of the problems is like I you know, it's like it is technically possible to get past the Shinobi Hunter without perfectly learning the Mikiri counter, but it kind of feels like cheating on your math homework because like then the next time you see a problem like that, it's going to be like, oh, well, the, the previous problem was supposed to teach me how to do this. And then I kind of figured out a way around it. And so like 
you know, I I totally got my ass handed to me by the Shinobi Hunter, but like by the end of that fight, I knew how to do that counter. And then every time an enemy did, you know, showed that they were going to kind of do the thrust, I was like, yes, because now I know how to do that. And and a lot of the bosses early on had that kind of thing where it's like this boss is teaching you how to do this thing. And and often that teaching was very brutal, (laughs) you know, but but then what what I really loved about them is it gave you this skill set by the end that I felt like because because the combat system is so specific, because you only have one weapon, you you really have to fight them in these ways. It's not something where you could be coming into this arena with magic or an axe or, you know, d- two swords that you're swinging at the same time. Like, they know exactly what you are going to be coming in with, and so they can kind of, like, tune these to be exactly the skills that... that hopefully you have at that point but you know but then if you if you don't if you're still struggling with the earlier stuff then the later stuff just gets impossible but for me you know it it became this really kind of incredible like every every single thing has a thing that i should do in response as opposed to the kind of like I'm gonna roll away twenty times and hope that this area of effect doesn't hit me, which is my least favorite kind of you know souls attack. Just knowing like I jump this, I dodge forward with this, you know, I counter seven times here. Um, there's there's kind of this this line in games sometimes where like something like Uncharted looks really cool while you're playing it and you feel cool because it looks cool, but you're not doing that much. And then on the other on the other side of it, there are, you know, kind of like hard, you know, indie games or whatever, where where the, the systems are really complex, but it doesn't really look like anything. And I feel like Sekiro has this unbelievable combination of those two where like when you're in the midst of a boss fight, you know, when you're fighting Genichiro for the first time and you accurately, you know, parry all of his flurry and then you both kind of like draw back at the same time it is like this incredible combination of cinematic feeling but knowing that like you did every part of that and it's so easy to mess up that during that because you have so many times um and so i really liked (laughs) that's that's basically where i land is there certainly certainly ones that i had a harder time with and and ones that i thought were less exciting but like just in kind of pairing the combat system with what they put you up against, I found this much more satisfying than the kind of like range of options that you have uh, in in a Souls game or something else. Oh, I think I, I've said the same thing before. Like I have had the highest highs uh, of very very few things, very few games have ever ever met them. Uh, with finally, um, you know, finally accomplishing some of the difficult fights. But the flip side is that, you know, when you're stuck in the mire of it and it's been 50 tries, I've also had some of the lowest lows and realistically, like, why the hell am I still doing this? Like, what am I wasting my time here? Like, I spent 
I mean, I I will say now I did end up finally beating um, Sword Saint at the end of the game, probably <laughs> an hour and a half, <laughs> two hours before we recorded. I was very, very pleased. But I'd spent about eight hours at that point yeah. doing it, which probably isn't a huge amount. It would have been a lot more. But after the, t- the point I was on about six hours, I was so fed up with, with bashing up against it. And I was, I was realistically good at about half of the fight. I'd gotten really good at the Genichiro fight leading into it. I'd gotten pretty competent in his, in his first phase, which is the one that I actually enjoyed fighting against because he doesn't have a spear at that point. And then as soon as he pulls the spear out and it's like, you are now immediately on a massive defensive kick against this guy. That was the point where it was all starting to fall apart. So I ended up, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say I looked up uh, sort of a, a an easier strategy of doing it rather than learning it. And it still, it did not end up being easy. Um, you get to a point where you basically, you defeat his first phase by uh, spamming, I think it's a combat arc called Shadow Rush, where you kind of dart in and he, he can't block it. So you do that about 10 times, which uses up all your spirit emblems. But if you can nail them all down, that pretty much destroys his posture bar in the first round. And the second round and third round, you're kind of running away, trying to keep a reasonable distance yeah. from him to draw him into doing, third he does like a big overhead jump smash attack. And at that point, you can roll through and then hit him from behind. I mean, you can either just hit him with regular attacks or um, the one that does a lot of damage to him is using the mortal blade or the, it's called mortal draw, mm. I think, yep. that combat art. And even doing that, which is supposed to be the the kind of the cheap, easy way of doing it, it still took me another few hours to manage to nail that down, partly because, you know, it's not quite as easy to get in there and hit him and then get back out without also taking damage. And the time that I beat him, I'd gone through all of my um, all of my healing items or certainly all of the gourds, as many um, things like pellets and stuff as I could keep on hand, a couple of divine grasses. And it was really like absolutely down to the wire. Like if I didn't get him when I did, I would have died. And then it's prep and everything again for it. Go and refill your um, what are the bar- the like the little resurrection yeah, wheel resurrection things? Nodes, Go and yeah. grind some enemies to refill those yeah. damn things. So I was I was very pleased that I did it. I don't feel that it was it was something that I didn't do correctly. It was more like a an alternative way to actually you know getting really good at parrying and countering his numerous attacks. I mean, I've seen some other interesting cheese methods for other bosses that I didn't use. Um, there's one for the Demon of Hatred where you can basically jump out of bounds in a manner that I don't think you're supposed to be able to do. The jumps that you do look bloody impossible and you get him to run off the edge. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, at this point, two weeks ago, I wanted to spend the time and, and get, you know, get to the point where I could do that fight legitimately. But I mean, it's it's seriously a thing with this final boss where if I hadn't used the strategy that I did, I wouldn't have done it by now, and I'd be really thinking about whether I want to spend more time on it. Like, eight hours spent on that fight. I could spend eight hours playing all of Gone Home, all of Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, all of What Remains of Edith Finch. I probably would rather play each of those games than do this one final boss fight. Like, all three of those together, definitely a better experience and uh, way of spending my time than losing against one boss. But, you know, different courses for horses, whatever. Just to jump in and give an example of how subjective uh, difficulty is, you were mentioning, John, that you struggled with a lot of the spear enemies. 
with the exception of Seven Spears, because nobody nobody finds him easy. Um, I actually found the spear enemies relatively easy to um, to deal with, and um, Sword Saint's second phase was the moment I found the fight easier. And it, it's it's so like it's funny hearing you talk about Sword Saint going right. I got the first phase, and then the second phase uh, hits. I breathed a sigh of relief every time the second phase started because it was the first phase that I struggled with, and like um, all the all the way through the game, it wasn't the the enemies with the big weapons and the spears that I struggled to read. I like um, the Shinobi Hunter, for example. I beat the fifth time I encountered him. I just for whatever reason just clicked with Shinobi Hunter really quickly and. Um, nailed the the Makiri counter system and 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 was just able to read him really easily. It's carrot. It was it was mini bosses like Orin of the oh, Water, yeah. oh. and then major bosses like Owl that completely destroyed me. Owl was my biggest wall in this game, aside from aside from the final um, the yeah. final bosses towards the end. Like Owl, I was stuck on for ages. Um, and I realized like the, the enemies that I do better with are the ones where you do have to take a more defensive, evasive posture and the enemies where you have to be more aggressive, like owl actually rewards you for being more aggressive and more on the attack. Because if you get too defensive, some of his tricks will, will really put you on the back foot. Whereas with Sword Saint, backing off, like baiting attacks, um, really puts you in good stead with him. I, I feel like in terms of my experiences with the bosses, um, I'm kind of in the exact middle between John yeah. and Jacob in that I certainly had um, experiences where I was stuck for a long time. Um, but it never kind of crossed the line in it, in the way that it did for John. Um, I spent a long I spent a long time fighting Sword Saint, but it wasn't eight hours. It was something more like four. Uh, same with Demon of Hatred. Uh, so, you know, same with Owl. Um, same with a lot of my uh, a lot of my walls. So um, for what like for whatever reason, this experience kind of struck like it kind of brought it all the way up to the line, but never quite crossed it yeah. for me. So I ended up loving a lot of my experiences with these bosses. Like the standouts for me in terms of just my pure enjoyment, uh, Genshiro, uh, Sword Saint, and um, uh, and the uh, Guardian Ape. Yeah. Um, I think those three kind of stand up as like amongst my favorite bosses in any of From Software's yeah. games. And you know we, we've talked a lot, a lot about just the pure mechanics of fighting these these monsters. Jacob um, did a great job of explaining why I love fighting these these bosses mm. mechanically, um, but aesthetically, uh, the animation uh, for these yeah. bosses is out of this world good. Um, I think the Guardian Ape is just a masterclass in animation. Just that little run that he does, like it, it just like suddenly. Oh my god, I'm looking at a real chimpanzee yeah, yeah, scurry, and a zoo, away, like, the way it's head, moving. Yeah, yeah. It's like a like a toddler yeah. or something yeah. moving. Yeah, yeah, 
you know the the animation is important for me because it injects so much personality like we complained previously about some of the soul sequels kind of veering more and more towards just dude with swords dude with sword dude with a spear and a shield dude dude with a dude of an axe and um there are lots of dudes with swords in this game but every single one um except me you know maybe some of the mini bosses that repeat but uh, certainly the major boss fights every single one has a personality yeah. every single one has a like a mechanical theme and focus um and the animation just sells the personality beautifully yeah. Um, yeah, I think these are amongst my favourite bosses of any From Software game. Okay, so we've got a couple of pieces of forum feedback. Um, Josh, I wonder if you would read us the forum feedback from the Baboon Baron, please. I've not got very far in Sekiro, but I think I've had enough already. I may well go back. I tend to find From Software games benefit from a cooling-off period if you don't gel with them early. The difficulty will more than likely be deconstructed, and I will happily admit I am no great gamer or platinum trophy hunter. The change from the RPG and levelling up to straight-up action caught me by surprise, but wasn't wholly unwelcome. I like action games, and so I gave it a good go. But the part I hit the wall with wasn't the bosses or the difficulty, it was the padding. Each boss or mini-boss had a whole bunch of goons to remove before the one-on-one battle could commence. Perhaps others were able to take them all on at once, but I ended up spending 10 minutes of time clearing out the lower-level foes to then take on the boss. When learning patterns and approaches, 10 minutes of clearing work provides you with 15 seconds of boss time before they ultimately turn you into a pincushion. This got old fast and resulted in the worst of all questions a player can ask themselves. Am I even having any fun? The answer was no. Sekiro is back on the shelf to be retried another day. Perhaps I'll rue and lament these words, but if you ask me today, Sekiro wasn't fun and the victories weren't rewarding. Side note, it struggled on base unit PS4, which really doesn't help with the Twitch reactions. Jacob, I wonder if you would give us uh, Mark FM007's... I played Sekiro literally right after finishing my first From game, Bloodborne. Unfortunately, this led me to attempting to play Sekiro like Bloodborne, leading to much frustration as I spammed dodge and firecrackers, wore enemies' health down slowly, and generally ground my way to inevitable rage quits. I knew I was playing wrong, but how to play the right way eluded me. It was antithetical to the style I had perfected in Bloodborne. I ground my way to Genichiro Ashina, but he wouldn't go down so easily. Over the course of a week, I fought him enough times that, like a Bloodborne character, my sanity wore away. <laughs> Over that time, Genichiro taught me what I needed to be doing. The relentless attacking, the back and forth of attack and deflect, learning to read his attacks before they landed, not backing off to heal every time my health dropped. While this may sound torturous, and was at times, everything after it was one of the most enjoyable gaming experiences I've ever had. Once I truly got it, the combat system was wonderful, a thrilling test of reaction, memory, and learning. 
After beating Father Owl, I yelled and pumped my fist in triumph, one of the most exhilarating, enjoyable boss fights I've ever experienced. And Sword Saint Ishin was the perfect end to the game, a true test of everything I'd learned. Getting that final blow literally stunned me to silence. And the true final blow, followed by Well Done Sekiro, was a great way to finish the game. Those um, shinobi executions, the little marker that pops up then, and quite often some of the bosses will say something to you. That's such a like a zen moment when you fall into that. And it, it plays to probably my favourite experience of the whole game as well, which uh, happens during the uh, the boss fight with the Guardian Ape, where you initially <laughs> can get through his first phase, and it seems as if you've... Um, You've successfully done it. Oh. It even comes up with the yeah. big thing on the screen saying uh, Shinobi so Execution. Good. It's a fantastic moment where he kind of falls to the floor and lies there just long enough for you to think that everything's all good before he starts twitching again and then gets it back up and comes in for a much more like violent and difficult uh, yeah. second round against him. And that's one of those things, again, that it's on- it only gets you that first time because unfortunately, you know, if you die during the second phase and you come back to it, you still have to do that first phase of the fight again, which it maybe seems like a, you know, slightly, um, slightly odd design decision to make you have that reveal moment every time. But man, the first time you get it, it's such a good psych out. I think I think that actually points to a kind of larger trend that I feel with Sekiro, which is that it's maybe my favorite first run through of of any from game but not necessarily my favorite repeated playthroughs because you you can't vary what you do you know you get better at the one thing and that is so fun for the first one and there are so many kind of amazing moments like the ape in the first playthrough but, in, you know, I've played through Dark Souls 3, you know, nine times and I, I did it with like, oh, this time it's with a big axe and this time it's yeah. with fire. And and the fact that you can't do this does mean that it's it's replayability is a little bit more limited, that there's there's only so much you can improve with what you have. Yeah, once you've got the muscle memory kind of learned for the fight, as uh, John, you uh, noticed in Jacob's playthroughs, uh, repeat playthroughs. Yeah, it becomes more of a breeze. I certainly felt that apprehension of going into New Game Plus and then actually got in there. It was like, oh no, I remember how to do all this. It's fine. Um, it, it really wasn't a problem. Uh, I went through most of New Game Plus and I don't think I, I think I could count on one hand the number of times I actually died just because I'd, I'd learned the fights. There there are a couple ways to make it uh, harder. There's... Um there's there's uh, the bell that you get at yep. the beginning mm-hmm. that yep. you can you can give back and i believe that one makes it so that any any block that's not a kind of perfect parry will yep. still take some health off yep. um and then there's the bell you can ring uh near the temple and i think that just makes enemies do more damage um yeah. th- something like that so yeah it, it does give you options to make it harder not yeah. easier yeah. but um but yeah so I, I tried playing with those and those those were very challenging i was gonna um, say yeah um the kuro's charm you, c- you can't do on new game but you can do on new game or new game plus once you've beaten new game once Mm-hmm. So you can't do it the first time through. You can give Kuro's charm back to him, which is something he slips into your pocket essentially to try and uh, help you. Uh, and yeah, it means it's not just posture damage you're being dealt if you block. You get chip damage as well, which uh, I tried for a little bit and was like, "Ooh, um, mm, not sure. I'm ha- not sure that's all that fun to try and 
relearn that because I kind of felt like I was getting away with the imperfect uh, deflect um, before, and now I felt like I wouldn't get away with that. I imagined some of the fights that I would be going through, and yeah, that didn't seem all that like it. W- like I would find the fun in that. Um, but the um, the uh, demon bell, I think it is you can you can activate on your first playthrough. Uh, and you yeah. won't necessarily find out the difference. Well, it tells you pretty explicitly, I think, and it also tells you you can get it rid of the item. Something yeah. you get a reward from the bell as well. It gives you a better uh, drop yeah. rate more, more on, um, a better, on enemies. Uh, drop rate of items, yeah. Mm, but at the cost, and you can then go back and re-ring the bell to to change it back. Uh, to well, it's actually an item you get in in your um, inventory that you can get rid of. So you don't have to go back to the bell to do it, but you can go. You can get rid of the item, then go back to the bell and re-ring it. You can kind of shift that, so you can always make the game harder. Uh, that's an interesting way to have dealt with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the one aspect I think we've covered actually quite a, a bit of the uh, the mechanics already, kind of talking through the bosses and stuff. One area we haven't almost touched on. I don't think we've even mentioned at all. Uh, which comes down to the shinobi prosthetic that you have on your arm as a replacement arm, which I made a note here is the a few years ago we had every game had a bow in it. Feels like at the moment, for whatever reason, every game's got a prosthetic arm in it. Uh, Devil May Cry Five, obviously last year, and uh, and this game as well. Uh, I feel like I'm missing another one that's somewhere. Obviously. MGS Five. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's no, yeah, Metal Gear yeah, Solid yeah, that's, Five. That's what yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of. Uh, although that was a few years ago now. Uh, Elden Ring, also there's a character with a uh, prosthetic arm as well. Uh, But one of the main reasons, or the main things you get from the prosthetic arm, if nothing else, is uh, a complete change in the locomotion of this game versus any other FromSoft game and versus probably a fair... I can't think of many third-person action games where... I guess there's plenty you have grappling Batman or the like, you know. Um, Yeah, things like Just Cause that have... Sort of yeah, grappling yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, so uh, grappling, uh, fixed points only. You can't just grapple anything. Although you can often uh, grapple enemies as well as the fixed points around the uh, the environment. Um, that this fundamentally changed the way I thought about things. It never never occurred to me to not just zip out of an, a situation if I wasn't happy with the with the two on one or or multiple enemies on one situation I was in. It gives you so many um, points for stealth blows and um, uh, what's it the like uh, death yeah. blow from above, like the diving one yeah, when yeah. you jump yeah. down on someone. It makes it makes it easy for a vast number of the mini bosses as well have um, you know have Take uh, one death they have this yeah, uh, death blow um, mechanic that we haven't no, really no, talked not. about that much. But yeah, uh, getting basically halving the amount of uh, time you have to fight these bosses for or these mini bosses yeah yeah definitely i i um played this much more like i would say a batman arkham game where as soon as i come into a new environment i'm looking around (laughs) at where are likely to be my um my grapple points and working out how i can get around enemies not necessarily to not encounter them but to encounter encounter them on my terms uh which is something that uh was a bit of a revelation for me i have to say in this game um yeah, yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed the grapple. Uh, how about Josh and Jacob? How did you feel about this? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, some in terms of how it interfaces with, with combat, I feel like I would be repeating what you just yeah. said, James. Um, like, it's funny, it's funny you said um, yeah. 
Arkham because that was immediately the thought I was having. It fe- feels a lot, a lot like um, the Arkham Asylum games yeah. in terms of it's not like the most complicated no. stealth system in in the world, but there's still some like tactics and decision making involved about where you position yourself and and waiting for enemies to uh, to you know hit certain points mm-hmm. in their pattern. But in terms of how it it improves and informs the level design is is incredible um not so much not just in the way um it uh, changes encounter design but just like exploration and being able to explore architecture that just simply wouldn't be possible in a traditional souls game like um i i'm thinking of the uh, the buddhist um the the uh, Buddhist uh, sculptures in the sunken yeah. valley, how you're yes. kind of like jumping and grappling between those huge statues, and it's just really cool and different from anything that you'd be asked to move around in a in a traditional Souls game. One thing I really like because. I feel like with with from in this game they kind of there's a lot of taking with one hand and then giving back with the other where you know they've added a lot of difficulty with the combat but in with this increased mobility they've gotten rid of instant death from falling which I just I'm so grateful yeah. for that yeah, for sure. because um can you imagine a version of this game where you died every time you fell down a pit because that that would be uh it would it would discourage you from engaging in the system because you just adopt the same yeah. level of caution as you do in a Bloodborne and a Dark Souls. But because it just nicks a bit of your health, uh, you know, eventually you will die, but it's not the instant punishment. So you're a bit more um, you're a bit more willing to take risk. You go, can I can I reach that ledge? Can I can I jump over there? <laughs> yes, I can. But if you can't, yeah. it's no big deal. Um, you're not starting all the way back. Um, to the last bonfire, not bonfire. I, idol. Um, the other thing, <laughs> idol. <laughs> Sorry. I I love it's such a simple addition, but man, being able to jump changes things. You know, it, yeah. it's kind of one of the reasons yeah. why I was yeah. I was frustrated with the combat in uh, the new God of War is that in the old God of War you could jump, and being able to jump just like adds so much dimension to combat and and you don't realize how much you miss it until you go back and play a dark souls a game after playing Sekiro and realize that you can't jump and you just feel kind of like nailed to the floor yeah. um it, you know what it lets it lets enemy attacks be more creative it lets the environment be more creative i just i love the level of mobility in this game you know i never i never played a souls game with anything other than the fastest role equipped anyway. And I love that they were just like, okay, let's make a game around that. <laughs> like you, you are going to be as fast as you possibly could be. And we're going to amp everything up to, to, you know, contend with you. Yeah. And, and by the way, no stamina meter. That's weird to get used to. It really is. Mm-hmm. You can wail on enemies as much as you like. They are, they will counter you. They will, they will make life difficult for you if you're not smart about it. But, uh, yeah, no stamina at all. It all comes down to a posture system, which I suppose is most like poise, kind of, um, in that you are managing your posture. So every time you block, you build up um, posture. If you do an imperfect defect, uh, deflect with your sword, you build up posture. Uh, but even for some enemies, some of the bigger enemies, even if you do a perfect deflect, I was definitely getting posture adding up on some cases as well. 
Um, I I thought I was I thought I had to be mistaken because surely they wouldn't do that. But I double checked it, and I am sure I saw my posture meter going up with perfect deflect for some enemies. It does, yeah. So the way that it works is that it will go up, but you can never get exhausted from a perfect deflect. Right. So you'll yeah. you'll never kind of like tire out if you you can yeah. kind of ride the top of the meter for a long time. Yeah, yeah. The um are are they called the giraffe enemies? The um the Wolverine like clawed enemies? Oh yeah, come at you. I, I was sure I couldn't do it because every time I was deflect, 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 my posture was just going up and up and up. And you're you're right. That's the answer. Is you perfect deflect every time? They'll never break your posture, which means at the end of their flurry, you can, uh, you know, you can attack them uh, and and take your posture down. But um, yeah, those no, are the no, enemies no. that really reveal. It's like, oh, this is a rhythm game, <laughs> you know that. Yeah. Which yeah. is maybe why I'm so good at it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I feel like well, maybe why I'm so bad at it. You know, when when I first fought those giraffe enemies, I gen I was just like, "There's no way!" Like, I just have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And it's now I could yeah. I could do it with my eyes it's closed, like, you just, know, because it's just like bam, 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 yeah. bam, 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 bam. In in more than a couple of cases, yeah. when I was talking to people playing when I was playing this game, people suggested. In in some cases, like close your eyes, don't focus on what you're seeing, focus on what you're hearing. Because you'll get the rhythm better. I don't necessarily think that's a recommendation I would give to everyone, but you, you, yeah, the rhythm of it once you know the attack patterns can actually be far, far more important than than spotting um, and going by what you see. Uh, it can be uh, a feel almost yeah. more than anything. Um, yeah. So yeah. when the, yeah, the Sheena, the Sheena Elite is almost like a, a and like a easier lesson in that um uh, earlier on because with the with the giraffe enemy it's like you're playing a melody to use to use uh jacob's uh jacob's metaphor of uh, if it being a ret- uh, rhythm game but with the ashina elite it's like a basic beat of a drum is like ba-bum ba-bum yeah. like learning that like basic beat with yeah. the ashina elite and then it kind of progressively gets um adds more and more notes that you need to yeah. learn the timing for as you encounter more of these mini bosses yeah it's really yeah. clever yeah i feel like it was a combination of um the giraffe enemies and the ashina elite that basically was what forced yeah. me to learn how to do the the perfect pairing and the blocking and i'm so looking forward to uh, running back in on uh, New Game Plus and seeing how easily <laughs> I just destroy all those early game enemies now. I want to get back to that bloody uh, Shinobi Hunter and, and just wipe him off the face <laughs> of the earth. Like immediately, it's going to be so satisfying to do that. And Lady Butterfly as well. Some of those fights that were really difficult before you really learned the mechanics and stuff are going to be interesting yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of uh, forum feedback, uh, John, would you like to read uh, John's from the forum, please? Uh, yeah, of course. So John Cheatham says, uh, Sekiro is hard to master, but easy to love. The game world is beautiful, and FromSoft might just have crafted the best sword combat in gaming. That it kept me coming back death after death and playing through New Game Plus 4 is testament to how good it feels to play. Excellent. Thank you very much. And um, a follow-up to, or not follow-up to that, another uh, forum post from uh, Damonth who says, I want to say that the difficulty isn't, like, impossible, because I know that's going to be a topic here. It's just kind of regular hard. Of course, I had to look up tips sometimes, but honestly, it's fine. Maybe the only truly messed up thing was the Demon of Hatred, and I might have gotten him with another persistent hour. Ichimonji double baby. 
Also, this game is less about timing blocks and more a test of if you have the willpower to not get annoyed by mashing the deflect button for maximum defense. Um, I think that feedback kind of mm. flies in the face of a lot of, lot of, lot of what we said, which is obviously that's the perspective of uh, the month. But um, yeah, that was one where I read that and I was like, oh, I don't know that I necessarily agree. I will say I agree with the Ichimanji double, the best yeah. skill in the game. <laughs> so let, let's start. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You only switch that out in very specific <laughs> Let, let's, occasions. Let's uh, talk about that. So we've got um, a bunch of different combat arts, 17 of them, actually, some of which are upgraded versions of others. Um, so you've got your shinobi prosthetic with all the tools, but you can also slot in alongside that one combat art. For me, I used Ichimonji Double because it added to the posture, even on a blocking enemy, really, like, a lot. Uh, so so against a lot yeah, of enemies, yeah. um, I think against Owl in the first fight against him, I used that a lot because he's got a lot of gaps you can take advantage of it. Um, and the other one I used was mm-hmm. the Ashna Cross. Uh, I think it's the Ashna Cross, which is the spinning yeah. sort of two-hit, isn't it? I think that's one you get quite early. Yeah. Um, it's probably one of the first ones that I equipped, and then it, it works quite well for stun locking some of the bigger enemies. Not not stun locking necessarily, but get in some you know where you've got the opening. They tend to not block or parry during the attack, yeah. so you kind of get the whole thing, and it's like four hits yeah. or something in there. So um, there are seventeen of these. I only ever really used two. The one that I know a lot of people used and I didn't was Mortal Draw. I didn't because I didn't like the idea of using up spirit emblems. I know you can use it without any, but I wanted my spirit emblems for my prosthetic tools. I didn't want to use them whilst using the mortal draw and end up running out and limiting my prosthetic tool ability. Um, were there any other um, combat arts? But basically, I guess what I'm asking is, what was people's kind of go-to build, or was it flexible from encounter to encounter? Uh, the only other one that I used significantly, apart from those three that you've mentioned, is one called Shadow Rush, which is it's another one of the ones that uses up a couple of spirit yeah. emblems. You do like a big thrust that goes, you know, some number of times the length of your character, um, and then if it hits, he flips up into the air, and you can land a few hits on the on the fall down as yeah. well. I don't know if it's unblockable for everybody, but it works quite well against um, one of the Sword Saint phases. Um, yeah, that one is cool. I've heard that the uh, the kind of like unarmed monk strikes are actually very good, uh, but I never had much success with them. Honestly, I feel like maybe Ichimanji is too good um, because not only does it add <laughs> to uh, their uh, posture, but it decreases your own. Um Oh, and yeah, and so I I kind of didn't do anything but that, which is a shame because yeah. the other ones like look really cool. But I was just like, yeah. I'm always hampering myself by not having like the best one in here. Yeah, there are probably really cool specific ways and encounters for you to make mm-hmm. use of all of them. And you know, there you know the alternative is just to be really good at doing the the perfectly timed blocking and counterattacking. I mean, it's it's not a combat art, but the um whatever it's called where you just you do the dash in it's it's quite often used to like back away and then you hit the um the attack button and you do the kind of the side sweep thing um that was like a big go-to for a lot of the at points where you an enemy leaves themselves open briefly where you probably could use um a combat art or a prosthetic tool but it's kind of easier if you if you know what you're yeah. doing to just get some regular attacks yeah. in um so in in terms of for me i think Combat arts, I tend to stick to the ones that I knew and knew I would 
use. Um, so Ichimonji double and um, Ashina cross. Um, the ninjutsu techniques were almost always a puzzle solving thing. I don't. Th- I think I used puppeteer when I had to to like for the uh, dried serpent viscera. When you go into the cave, you need to uh, take control of one of the monkeys there. Uh, that seemed the obvious way to deal with that problem. Um, and uh, that that I think that was more or less when I used that was for uh, problem solving. And then the prosthetic tools were the ones that I varied more fight to fight in terms of dealing with a specific thing. The, the one that really baffled me, actually, speaking of the armored warrior, we, as we did earlier, there's there's a prosthetic tool which is uh, from a spear that you pick up that specifically says it's to remove ill-fitting right. armor. Now, it says ill-fitting, sure. I never found an encounter where I needed to use that to remove armor. The time I did use it was for the um, headless ape, where you can trigger a, a parry attack that... that it collapses to the ground and you can just pull the centipede out of there and get a huge damage uh, buff off it, which I ended up reading after I'd beat Guardian Ape, but before I did the double ape uh, fight. And so I used it for that second, um, that second. Yeah. Fight I feel like ape. that's a, a mistranslation or something because I agree. I, I was it's like, weird, const- yeah. I saw that armored guy and I was like, Oh, here's where I use it. And then it didn't do anything. Yeah. It's, I, the spear I did not find particularly useful at all, except for pulling the centipede out of the ape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, ditto. The axe has a handful of uses, mainly against a few enemies, mostly quite early on, who have uh, shield shields or, yeah, or yeah. The, um, the, yeah, the hat guys, but otherwise wasn't that useful. The um, flame barrel, it specifically either... I think somebody in-game actually tells you that Oh, this is really good against the uh, the guys with the red yeah. eyes. Yeah, they do. Um, and specifically the chained ogre, who you find around the same time as you're likely to get it. So that's like a, an obvious um, combo if you're struggling with him to throw oil at him and uh, and then use the the flame barrel for even more damage. And the firecrackers are kind of just good for almost everything. They specifically mentioned being good against beasts, and it's a roughly the the sort of time that you might find the um, the blazing ball. Originally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're going to make really good use of them and Giobo to try and get his horse to freak out. But that's that's one where it almost seems like you know they mm-hmm. undersell it rather than overselling the spear. They tell you, oh, this would be really good against animals. Actually, it's just really good against everything. Yeah. And the um, another a consumable item called divine confetti, which sells itself as being the only way to do any damage against apparitions actually i think is just a something like a 25 percent damage it's pretty much the, so it yeah it's pretty much the everything. best buff in the game just to use as a default yeah. i think yeah 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 um i will say that uh mistraven and ended up being uh, a prosthetic tool i used more and more as i right. upgraded it um i favored the uh, firecrackers throughout most uh-huh. of the game, but once you get to the point where you've got the flame variant of the Mist Raven, it became one of the most effective prosthetic tools in terms of damaging um, the uh, posture of uh, enemies. Oh, so there's like that's there's a second encounter with the Ashina Elite, but it's a red-eyed variant later on. If you choose to fight the red-eyed Ashina Elite the same way you did the previous one, you'll you'll eventually get it, um, but it will be slightly tougher 
etc etc you just try it as many times as as many times as you need to until you get it if you have the mist raven with the flame uh, uh, attached to it that fight becomes incredibly easy because you just use the flame mist raven every time he attacks and it destroys his posture completely obliterates him um and any red-eyed enemies in fact if you're if you've got the flame uh, mist raven, it's way more. I found it way more powerful than the flame yeah. vent, which is what the game tells you to use against red eyed enemies. So um, there are some tools, and I also feel like the umbrella tool, um, yeah. when you know how to use it, is incredibly powerful. Um, James, you already mentioned um, the way you can use it against Demon uh, the yeah. Demon of Hatred, um, but there are several like. Um, I think I believe against the headless, there's a version of it that works incredibly effectively is, against the headless and the Shichiman warriors as um, well. Anything that does terror damage, yeah, it just completely blocks yeah. terror. Yeah. So um, while I think there's a there's a temptation to kind of stick with the firecrackers because of that window it gives you, um, I think all like a, a, the vast majority uh, of these prosthetic yeah. tools are, except the spear. I, I, I agree <laughs> with the spear. I think there's only really one use for the spear. But I think the vast majority of these prosthetic tools are really useful yeah. and have, uh, um, especially in their upgraded forms, yeah. can be um, can really turn uh, the The tide. only thing I'll say about them is I kind of felt like the... Um, the resource economy was a little off, you know, that, that they're, they're really, yeah. they're gated behind things. And so for much of the game, it was just like, well, I just don't know where to find like this one kind of gunpowder. And so then I can't unlock anything. Um, and, and yeah. I, I just, yeah, I feel like they could have had more separation in the upgrade trees rather than you need to get this one before you can get this one. And then I just had to stick with basically like the base items for most of the time. Um, but it's a small complaint, all things considered. One thing we haven't talked about that I guess we should, that's on a par, I guess, with the um, the grapple hook uh, and is right there in the name of the game, uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, is there's a resurrection mechanic in this. You have two resurrection nodes by default. One replenishes when you rest uh, an idol. The other replenishes or is refilled by death blows predominantly, but also just by doing damage to enemies. Um, you can get a third in the game. I found myself nov never really feeling like that third one made a difference because you most times I needed the resurrection um, was during a boss fight and it's either struck out and you can't use it or you've just done a death blow and got your resurrections back. So like stuff like the bundled Jesus statue, I never found a use for it because when it's when your death blows are struck out and deactivated, um, because you've already died and resurrected once in that phase of the fight, they they don't help. I find it really strange that that worked that way. But resurrection in general, obviously, uh, a kind of key mechanic in this game. Uh, yeah, I mean the the time that the third resurrection nodes really become useful is well, I suppose you've got to have the boss fight with the the three or more phases to do it. So I I was burning them uh, during my attempts to beat the final boss, and I think I, I ended up probably not really using any of the the bundled Jizo statues throughout the yeah. game, but I did start using okay. them while I was while I was trying to fight um, Lord yeah. Saint. Yeah, but it's it's weird to have such a 
a big deal being kind of useless for a lot of the game. Yeah, yeah, it felt it felt really weirdly balanced. It, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the resurrection mechanic. I enjoyed kind of choosing when to use it. Although I think the answer is always always use it because that decreases the amount of times you'll encounter dragon rot, uh, which only occurs on true death, not on a resurrection. Um, I feel like there's something slightly misleading that the game makes it sound like it's using the resurrection nodes that's increasing yes, your dragon rot. That's and that was kind of an early, yeah. an early stumbling block for me was, oh, do I want to resurrect here? I'm only, I'm only like three guys away from the lamp or the, um, yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah, thought yeah, the, the same thing playing um, through. I was like, I should be careful about this. And like, no, no, you shouldn't. Yeah, yeah no, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess the theory is resurrecting back to the idol is in theory using the same dragon's heritage, but I don't know why it only affects it when you reset to an idol. Like from a lore perspective, why it affects it when you reset to an idol, but not when you resurrect mid-fight. It's kind of a strange thing that like there's a halfway house somewhere of of uh, dragon rot which is weird i think this is a, a good time to say that i think dragon rot feels like a um an unfinished or maybe more likely cut back feature um it really feels to me like at some point npcs would actually die like that yeah and and i, I so. mean and thank god they didn't because i don't think that would be fun but it, it gets it's like it gets to the point where it's like dragon rot feels kind of meaningless. Like it, it really never affected my ability to do almost anything. And then sometimes there would be an NPC that I couldn't talk to. And then I would use the dragon's tier and talk to them. But like it, it really didn't significantly affect my game. And I don't think that's a bad thing because I don't like the kind of hollowing effects in, in demon souls or dark souls two or whatever. Mm. Um, but it is strange that it it just kind of exists but doesn't really do much. I I, lo- I love it as a palpable gameplay uh, gameplay evoking the theme of um, how the use of this power is damaging the people of yeah, the, the land. Cost. Yeah, I wish there were less. I le- I wish it was a lot harder to reverse dragon rot than yeah. it is. Um, to let kind of players live with the consequence of what they've done yeah. for a little bit, um, but as a using the medium, just using the interactivity of games to actually like demonstrate, like you have this power, um, the, the the land and and the elite in this land have this access to this power, and it is killing people. Maybe not in a very literal gameplay sense, but in the context of the story, it is a cancer yeah. that is destroying the common people. And I love it for that, um, but I tend to agree with Jacob yeah. that it feels uh, not all the way there as a Doesn't fully fleshed out mechanic. And I think that's part of my problem with it too, is that it's set up to be in the early part of the story. This is... This is horrendous. What you are doing, what what Dragon's yeah. Heritage is doing to these people is horrendous. And yet I never then felt it through the gameplay. Like Jacob says, if if it had taken longer for someone to suffer from Dragon Rock, but it was irreversible, I don't know how that works from a game. Like losing NPCs, I don't know how you do that. Yeah. But 
I ended everybody's up- dead by the time you get up to like fighting beyond the the owl fight. Yeah, and but I, but the, I also the lands just barren. there was times where. I expected to be getting notifications and wasn't. I felt like I was dying enough that it should be triggering and it didn't, which meant that I I started off the game thinking, oh God, these dragon blood droplets are expensive and they're rare. I'm going to have to be really careful about when I use them. And it ended up just being this mild inconvenience where I'd go to uh, a a vendor or an NPC and not be able to trigger a conversation. So I just say, oh, well, I'll use the dragon's blood droplet have the conversation and then, you know, worry about it when I get three or four or five more people with Dragon Rot. And it just never had uh, anything more than a mildly irritating effect on my gameplay, which is not how something that serious in the story should come through, in my opinion. Uh, real mistake. Yeah, I think I got to a point where, like, every single major boss that I fought, you know, more than a dozen mm-hmm. times, I just got to the point where it's like, well, the my unseen aid chance is going to go down people are going to get dragon rot but there's no point in carrying it now because i'm just going to keep dying against this boss so you just get to a a stage where it's like well i can fight this thing a hundred times and as long as i've got a a pellet you know a a dragon's um what are they called dragon blood droplet a droplet yeah to to reverse it as soon as i've beaten this boss it's effectively having no major impact on what's going on i think you can even still buy um items from merchants who've got dragon rot they just won't have the conversation yeah, with you or progress you quest might, lines might if they do. Yeah. And I'm also under the impression that they actually made it easier as the um, the game's been patched, unless it's a fallacy. But there was something that I was listening to the other day. It was, must have either been um, something on Bonfireside Chat or something in a, in a, a lore video that mentioned the fact that there's supposed to be a hard cap of something like 12... Um, uh, 12 of the droplets throughout the game um and i think that that's e- that was either wrong whoever said that or they've patched it in so that some of the sellers who the merchants who have them will sell you another one at later a certain amount game. of time right, later okay. on yeah because hmm. i i've ended up the game i've still got 11 or 12 in my yeah, inventory yeah. and i must have used 20 of them throughout the course of it to, to reset yeah, it yeah um, and also, unseen aid is fairly low chance at thirty percent anyway. So it never like I just got used to okay. Uh, the the unseen aid penalty was not that drastic. I worried about it, but it was at thirty for most of my playthrough of the game, and I never felt like it was that significant anyway. I don't know, it's strange. Yeah, like it kicks it kicks back up. But the same thing with the with the bosses and the the um the dragon's blood droplets. Like I'd I'd be fighting up against the boss, and it'd be like, well, before you go to this boss, go and spend any money you've got and grind up to the next skill point level so that you're not going to lose anything. Then you can just fight this boss a million times if you need to, and you you don't have any penalty for dying, and the dragon rock yeah. can just keep going until until you've finished, and then you can reset everything. So it kind of made it a bit meaningless. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right, well, I think we are probably just about running out of time. One last piece of forum feedback from Nupraptor, which I will read. This is a very difficult game. This is currently part of the appeal for me, but even I might be reaching my tipping point. There aren't even some of the limited crutches that were available in the Souls games and Bloodborne. Meaningful grinding is not possible and you can't summon help for tough encounters. I spent hours on some of the bosses, fighting them over and over again to try and get it right. I considered giving up several times. By the time I beat the final boss, it was late in the evening, I'd been repeatedly attempting the same battle for for hours, and my fingers were cramping from the effort. I am a 40-year-old man, I have a more than full-time job, a family and other hobbies. 
Can I really justify playing a game that makes such demands of time just to get past one boss? For this game, for now, the answer is yes. Just. Will that be the case with the next From game if it's similarly demanding? Only time will tell. As always, thank you for the community feedback. The other feedback we have are three-word reviews, which we request on Twitter on the day of recording. Uh, we had quite a few for this one. So, Jacob, I wonder if you could take us away, please. Absolutely. The Baboon Baron says, Shadows die loads. Simon Sloth says, More than twice. Rorchard says, Live, die, repeat. Craig McAdam says, A hard game. Suits says, Hard to enjoy. Stanshaw says, One and done. Uh, Hypnocrit, Hypnocrite says, uh, From Software's Itchy Ban. Tibble and Bit says, Redefines video game swordplay. Schwartz Ben says honed harrowing swordplay. And John Cheatham continues the theme with flawless sword combat. Uh, Peditus One says masterfully crafted combat. Pasamtic says master Makiri countering. G Town Steve says learn to parry. Deadbeat Punk says hesitation is defeat. And Andrew Mason also says hesitation is defeat. <laughs> Richard Murphy, take a drink. Andrew Elmore, nope, big snake. Connor Hawks says, burn the ogre. Uh, Gareth Cutcliffe says, Japanese with subtitles. Mark M482 says, well done, Sekiro. Had to finish on that one. So there we go. That is uh, the discussion. Now all that remains is our summaries. I popped these in order beforehand that I thought would make sense, and I think they still do. So, Josh, would you like to start us off with your summary of Sekiro Shadows Die Twice? Um, with the Souls games, there's this uh, balancing act between the RPG side and the action side. Um, and I feel like... Um, well, I mean, Sekiro fully leans into the action side in a way that um, uh, none of the other Souls games have, and to the point where I feel like comparing it to other action RPGs isn't really appropriate anymore, and in reality, um, I think it's closest brethren, even though um, some of the default, you know, the standard controls are still very much a Souls game, its closest brethren is actually stuff like Ninja Gaiden and uh, Bayonetta and, and Devil May Cry. Um, and I totally appreciate um, that for people who are more in love with the RPG side than the action side, that this could be, uh, you know, this could be a disappointment and a feeling that the that From is moving away from um, what they loved about those games. For me, I I love both. Um, I love RPGs and I love um, high skill ceiling action games. So I'm happy for From to lean into whatever side um, they want to. Um, Sekiro really clicked with me. I loved it. Uh, I adored... Um, uh, playing it all the way through, even when I was up against a wall with a certain boss fight. Um, I, I think it is leaner than any game they've put out uh, previously, but there's a precision and a focus and um, a, a, just a general tightness to this that uh, ends up making it um, one of my favourite action games that I've played. And Elden Ring... 
looks like they're leaning in the other direction. And I am happy to embrace that experience that's more in love with the RPG side of the Souls experience. Um, I'm really glad that I um, seem to be back in love with what From Software is doing again um, because I was left a little bit cold by the the entry previous to this and uh, I'm excited to see more from From. Thank you very, very much. Uh, John, how about yourself? Mm, um, I think I've probably been vocally more critical than everybody else here specifically just because mainly it was just that some of the difficulty especially towards the end of the game just felt like it it pushed me beyond my my breaking point away from what I was enjoying but I mean that being said it's true but it hasn't really completely changed any of the previous positive opinions that I've had about the game um, I still think that it's it's not it's not as close to the Souls games as I probably would have liked and was hoping for from From, um, and the other games that uh, specifically Josh just mentioned that it's more akin to are games that I've always struggled a little bit to get into. A lot of those um, platinum games and things I haven't ever really clicked with in in anywhere near as meaningful of a way as as I have done with From's previous output. I mean, all I can say to anybody who's kind of on the fence about it is, yeah, it's it's a difficult game to get into, but it's a very, very satisfying and rewarding game if you can overcome early hurdles and hopefully stay in that sort of positive mindset as it goes on and and you know overcome the challenges that are that are there. It has one of the more kind of as again as Josh said, kind of more slender and well refined. Uh, storylines of of the previous games and as it's a, a from game with similar writing um you know if, if you've enjoyed any of those then there's there's a huge amount here to to also get on board with um it looks and plays incredibly well um just visually uh aesthetically the way that the movement feels it's so elegant and it makes me scared to go back to play Dark Souls again. I really want to play Dark, the original Dark Souls because uh, there's now things like Randomizers and uh, Daughters of Ash. And I'd probably already be doing that if I wasn't put off somewhat by the fact that I think they're going to feel really clunky and horrible in comparison to what I've been doing here. Um, overall, it was it still manages to be one of the the better, more favourite of the games that I played from last year. Just with that caveat that, you know, there's a wall that you're going to grind up against. And I guess you need to need to know whether or not that's going to be worth your time. So I was worried about this game, I have to say, because I know that some of the ways that you can dynamically kind of shift difficulty in terms of you can go and grind and level up in if the game's an RPG. You can't if it's an action game that doesn't necessarily afford you the same flexibility to do that. And this game definitely doesn't for for me, and I was worried that I might not be able to complete it. I I did complete it, but that doesn't lessen my assertion that there is more that can be done in terms of welcoming other people who want to enjoy this game for many reasons, for many different aspects, and are put off. Um, I I don't think that means from software or Activision in this case should be 
forced or uh, or told to include uh, accessibility or difficulty options that they don't want to include. Um, I think they're a business who want as many people as possible to play their games. They still want to have a vision, but the way that they get more people to play those games is by working with them, not against them, to some extent. Um, that said, I finished this game and didn't really have the same compulsion to go back to it. As Jacob had mentioned, the replayability maybe isn't there. I, I played through three or four times back to back and then stopped and haven't played it in 11 months. But this conversation we've had today, as so often happens on Cain Rinse, has me really much more positive and excited and uh, reminiscing about my experiences playing it than I thought I was going to be. Uh, and so my overwhelming feeling uh, coming out of this recording is uh, I finished Dark Souls 3 th thinking maybe From should stick to new stuff because uh, I'm not enjoying the sequels as much as the Bloodborns and the Dark Souls. It's Having played this now, yeah, I, I'm adamant. If Dark Souls 4 is announced, I will be far less excited about that than I will the likes of an Elden Ring or the likes of something in the mould of Sekiro, not necessarily Sekiro 2. I want to see something new, and I, I like the fact that this game allows From to focus on combat in a different way to what I have enjoyed and played of theirs. So I, I come out of this recording uh, more positive on the game, I think, than I was hoping that as many people as possible uh, will want to and can play the game. And I wish that th that bridge could, could extend in both directions. Jacob, I thought you might like to close us out. Yeah, well, I think... So, so in many ways, this game feels tailor-made for me in, <laughs> in that the, the things that I enjoy most are truly just kind of like given given a consistent skill set bettering myself in comparison to a predictable but challenging enemy if you have listened to any of the other canon rinses where we've talked about difficult games like the like the fury episode yeah, you know that sure. is that is kind of my jam yeah. um and so from a purely gameplay perspective sekiro is is just a just a you know home run i really really had an excellent time playing through it all of the times that I did when it came out. But I do think that there is a reason that I haven't gone back to it and don't really feel as strong a desire to go back to it. And maybe it's just a a setting thing that that it's a little more grounded. But but there's not really the sense of of wonder that I experienced while playing, you know, I hate, I hate to keep comparing uh, this to From's earlier games, but that is, you know, I, I have a long yeah, uh, experience yeah, with this company. Um, and, and Sekiro feels a, a little less, uh, less awe-inspiring, you know, it is, it is tight as a drum, like, it, it is, it is lean and mean, and it feels great to play the whole time, and, and for many games, that would be all I would ever ask of them, and Sekiro is absolutely one of the best play games that I've played in recent memory, but it, but it still left me wanting a little more, uh, Something that I had, had didn't even know to, you know, expect something that I never could have imagined before playing it. And and so I think that 
I'm really looking forward to to Elden Ring because I think there is a perfect marriage that exists between these gameplay mechanics mm-hmm. and maybe a more fantasy centric uh, scenario. And and I'm just waiting for them to to marry those mechanics as good as I know they ultimately will. Very well put. Thank you very much. That's us. It remains for me. I'm James to thank John, Jacob and Josh as well as all of our forum correspondents and all of the people who give us three-word reviews, our editor Jay, plus, of course, every single one of you for listening. Next time in issue 412, insert inappropriate virus joke that hopefully won't be relevant in a few months' time, but it sure is now. It's Dying Light! (laughs) 